Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, let's arm your toaster for battle. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. When you hear the term, quote, custody battle, close quote, you have a certain image in your mind. Courtroom fights, crying kids, the worst stereotypes we learn from the movies and television. But what happens when you find yourself in a fight for the custody of your own kids, for real? This week on the show, we welcome Renee Rodriguez, custody coach and founder of Best Foot Forward, a company with this singular mission, helping parents navigate family court and contentious custody situations. Renee, welcome to the toaster. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are uh, really glad to have you here uh, to share with us sort of your perspective on how you navigate these rough waters of custody, specifically around these custody battles. We talk a lot about the court experience. We talk a lot about, you know, going to court and what it means to have contentious litigation, but specifically around custody. Why don't you start us off with a little bit of perspective setting? What does a custody battle look like by the time it gets to you? Can you describe it? Sure. Yeah. Well, when people, by the time people come to me, Many of them are actually going for their their second round of a custody battle, right? They figured something out the first round and they're coming back because it turns out it didn't work out, right? And then we have the clients who come to us because, you know, they're going through a separation and they're not getting along well. The majority of our clients are actually suffering from domestic violence, right? We know that around 90 to 95% of people who separate are, they're going to figure it out. They're going to get a lawyer. They're going to sit and mediate. They're going to figure it out between the two of them. But the remaining 5%, those are the people who end up in court and that's where things tend to get ugly. So by the time people come to me, they're fighting for their children and their children are caught in the middle and it's getting really ugly. And so when you say that they're going to end up in court, that when I hear that, I hear they're going to a trial and a judge is going to make the decision on when those children see what parent and when on what holidays and when. Is that the same meaning that you're putting on going to court? Usually, actually, when you go to court, there's... um you get stuck in a long process, right? So trial is something that the judges want to avoid. The lawyers usually want to avoid. Everyone Amen, sister, on that one. I agree. <laughs> yeah, right, it's, right. It's so much money, right? You're already spending a lot of money to have this battle, this legal battle. But when you start out, depending on your jurisdiction, where you're located, they really like to try to send you to mediation, they like to send you to somebody who's going to sit you down and say, maybe we can figure this out with the help of a third person. Yep. In, in, in Hillsborough County in Florida, it is required. Before you're going to trial, you're going to mediation. So I always tell people this isn't monopoly, right? You don't go and just don't pass go, don't collect $200, go straight to jail. There's a long way to get straight to jail, so to speak. And in jail, I call going to trial because you're going to be trapped in a courtroom with someone else making the decisions for you. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I'm with you. So, so you're talking about just 
how is this battle going to go down and do we really have to have a battle? Yeah, the goal is to try to not have it be a battle. But really what it looks like for my clients is that the lawyers are sending letters to each other saying, tell your client not to do this. Can we try this with your client? Does your client want that? My client wants this. So you've got the lawyers sending letters back and forth and that can be effective for some things, right? The clients are going to the mediation. And there are going to be court appearances. There are going to be hearings. And um, as you know, these things are, they're fast. A lot happens pretty quickly. Um, I have clients who are shell-shocked that a visitation schedule has been set in just 10 minutes, right? So What uh, took so long? It's 10 minutes? Great. We get that much time. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's like, you know, you go into court, you're kind of like, okay, we're going to talk about this, but you end up talking about something completely different. Decisions are made. And so you get these temporary uh, parenting schedules, right? But temporary very often is what ends up becoming permanent, we find. You guys have both just said something that I think is, is important that we that we latch on to a little bit before we move on, which is that you are surprised at the things that are important to the court versus what is important to you as a parent going into this process. Can you define just sort of what's the bucket look like of things that are important to the court to move you in and out of the process versus the things that that as a parent listening to this, you might be really concerned that the court is like, what are the misconceptions of what's important to which party? Pete, we only have an hour. Max. <laughs> I mean, I can't a, even get the question Andy's, out that You know, fast, at 40 so. minutes, Andy starts giving me the stop talking. Yeah, he's cutting sign. us off. <laughs> so, Renee, I'll let you uh, field that one first and I'll chime in. You know, so I, I use certain terms to kind of help my clients figure out what that difference is. And I kind of say, look, we're going to, all of the stuff that you're talking about is valid. It's causing heartache, it's causing pain, it's problematic, but. We're going to look at it as here's what the court's going to see as gripes and here's what the court's going to see as real issues. And that's sort of the way I word it with my clients to say, okay, you're coming in and you're saying that he, you know, won't let you keep the car. He won't let you use the car for the kids because he says it's his, you say it's yours, that type of thing. This is going to sound a little gripey when it comes down to the things they really want to look at, which is the parenting schedule and some of the bigger uh, decisions that need to be made. The stuff that's going to fall under what a lot of jurisdictions call legal custody, right? And that's going to be, you know, it's time for them to go to school and we're fighting over which school to go to. I want the private school, but he's refusing to pay tuition. Um, I want the public school and she's refusing to comply. Um, that type of stuff, it's timely and it's huge. So it's got to happen, right? So you can't be focusing on their, you know, the child support check is coming late or this is happening or our child is saying this. All of the stuff that your children, all of that stuff is going to be something that's going to be in front of um, a guardian ad litem or whoever your child's representative is or the evaluator, right? But all those little things you want to put together for somebody else, for the judge, when you're in there for 10, 20 minutes, if that, as you're saying, Seth, it's honestly going to be the big stuff. So the key here, Pete, to understand is every jurisdiction does it differently. So it's not uncommon if I have a temporary relief hearing, which is I'm going to do the judge and saying, this is what I want the parenting plan to be from today until we finally get this couple divorced. And that's when the permanent parenting plan will be in place. I'm lucky if I get an, I'm going to have an hour 
to do that. Now, out of my hour, it's set from four to five. I get a half hour of time and opposing counsel gets a half hour of time. So now I'm down to 30 minutes. And then there might be some procedural arguments or some, some, you know, the court might ask us some questions where we're on this case before we get started. So let's just say that stuff takes 10 minutes. Now we're down to 50 minutes. So I don't get my 30. I'm down to 25. Okay. And I have 20 factors, A through T, that I have to talk about in 25 minutes. And it's not that I get to just say, judge, here they are. I have to put on a witness. I have to ask questions and answers about all of these factors. And I have to explain to the court what I want the parenting plan to be. So that's one witness. And it's usually my client who obviously is biased, as all clients are to themselves. And that's assuming I don't put on the other party. So just think of the amount of information that I have to get into the court through the question answer through objections of the other side. It's a lot. Now, what you need to do is decide on what's the most important factors. And in that first five to 10 minutes when we're doing the intros, I'm telling the court, judge, we are not going to discuss these factors. We're only going to discuss these factors because it's temporary. We think these are the most important ones. So I'm going to limit it and I'm going to get in and get out as quick as I can. Now, here's the other problem. If I'm doing temporary relief on a parenting plan, maybe we're having financial issues. So now I got to talk about who keeps the house, how much alimony should be, and what's child support. So I've just added these other huge issues, and I still only have my 25 minutes. So choose wisely. And I think Renee's point is well taken. And and I, I love the gripe versus real issues that you say, Renee. I say it a little different. I say there's the real world, then there's the legal world. And they don't match and they don't overlap. So I got to talk about stuff that's not real world, but legal world that's going to have an impact on the judge to make the decision we're going to make. And it's going to go fast. That gets to exactly the question, right? Which is as a as a, a parent, a non-legal actor in this legal process, uh, how do you coach me to get over the fact that the things I think are most important are not most important and may not be in my best interest. Yeah, so what we do is when people come in and work with us, we have them do uh, what we call the custody blueprint. And with that, they're going in and they're filling out a lot of stuff. In putting it down on paper, they're forced to kind of look at what their complaints and issues and concerns are. One of the sheets that we use that works really well is something that's called um, your concerns about him. And then we talk about his concerns about you or vice versa. Um, we do mostly work with women right now because our focus is on domestic violence. And statistically, um, it's mostly, not always, but mostly women who suffer from domestic violence. So that's why I'm using that terminology. Now, so we've got a client who fills out something and we've got all the different things we know are going to come up, right? It's going to be neglect and abuse. These are the possible things that are pretty much always going to show up somewhere. And then we have an other category. They're going to go in and they're going to say, these are our issues, but here's the proof I have for it. And that's the requirement. Once we have all of that, we look at it and we say, okay, knowing what we know about the court and we've got a lawyer on our team. So knowing everything that we're looking at here, these six things are the things that are most compelling for what you've got, right? 
Now your job is to partner very strongly with your lawyer to, between the two of you, choose. But I wouldn't waste your time bringing the rest of these things that you think are so important here unless you can show me something that's going to be more compelling that we know that the court's going to find relevant. I could just imagine myself like screaming, but this is what's right. This is what I think is right. Yeah. Yeah. Or even better, this is what's fair. Oh, yeah. Better. And I say fair is where Uh. you get cotton candy. (laughs) Like we're not doing that here. Okay. I yeah, so, not a I think you just got Renee to groan. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that it's not fair stuff. It's I'll tell you what it is. I'll be honest with you. What I hear a lot is um what's fair to mom and dad? And my question is what's fair to the kids? Yeah. That's what we're looking sure. at here. Well, what's fair to the kids? And to pick up Pete and I I love it when we have people like Renee on the show cuz we basically I get to hear how other people do this whether they're in the law or helping people going through the process. And so much of what I think quality work is going on out there is where I hear other people doing it. And then sometimes my ear picks up and I say something a little different. And I like that contrast. So I do what Renee does when it comes to what she calls the blueprint. We give our clients the statute that says all the different things, the outline, the blueprint of what the court's going to look at. And, and I tell them, I want bullet points. I don't want paragraphs. Because that makes people be condensed and not be stream of conscious. It's by design. And I say, on every factor, I want to know whether it's applicable or not. Because sometimes it's just not applicable. Like, do you have a child's preference, let's say, and the kid's four years old? That's not going to be relevant. Okay. But let's say on each of the parenting ones, the one that focuses on the parent's behavior and how it relates to the children, tell me the things that you do well. Tell me the things that you don't do well. Tell me the things that your spouse does well and what your spouse doesn't do well. Some of it might be, oh, we're about the same. Some of it you'll, and and which ones are like more important. So I have them kind of like just do a check mark or a star. I don't have them rank them, right? But that forces them to evaluate their own behavior and the others. And then at the end, I say, what are the worst things you think your spouse will say about your parenting? Because they've heard it all before in the fights. It's not like it's new information, right? We've had some where there's like character assassination that comes up later when people are just crazy. So we do that, which is very similar to what Renee's doing. Now, Renee said something where my ears picked up here. Renee says, I want the proof. Now, being a lawyer, I tell my clients, you don't have proof and you don't have evidence. You have information. So I want the information that supports what you're telling me then I have to get that information into court. So in the courtroom, it will prove what we want it to prove. So the outcome is what we want. But I use those terms differently because I have clients that say, I've got proof because his best friend told me, well, that's hearsay. That's not coming in court, right? So I use that differently, but it's the same concept. Show me what you got. Yeah, it comes down to that. It's the documentation. And a lot of times what I have to keep repeating is, look, you got to document everything when, especially when you've got domestic violence going on here. But here's the thing. You've got this big old stack of stuff. You can't just come in and dump that down in front of the judge. You're going to use about maybe 5% of everything that you've got there. So you're really just looking for the pieces that are relevant and compelling. Um, But we usually say, get that documentation in order. Yeah. And Pete, by 5%, remember, we've had 
discussions about apps that where parents communicate and the court's allowed to look at it and someone will submit two, three, four, five, six months, if not longer, of communications back and forth. And the judge will say, the other side goes to put it in, and they'll say to me, Mr. Nelson, any objection? I'll be like, judge, it's, you know, I'll say voluminous, like it's the same thing over and over. And the judge will look at the other side and says, I agree, because if you put it in, I'm going to read all of it. So, Give me your five best, what you really want me to see. But I'm not going to read six months of communication between parents. Right, right. But but again, as a parent, I can see how I would be incented. Like, Seth, you you brought up, you know, I want bullets. Well, I can see all kinds of ways I would take your bullets and I would raise you 300 word answers for each bullet. Like, I can see how emotion would drive me to work counter to myself in the context of the law. But I think it really does come to finding those particular, because it is six months, 12 months, who knows how long. And you look at these things and people can get so acrimonious, but when you've got something that actually has it laid out what the problem is, that's a good piece of documentation right there, right? Like one email is all you need to show something and then you can say, I've got plenty more where this comes from, but this this is what I want you to look at, right? Right. And part of that, Pete, where you're saying the emotion takes over and you want to show me everything, it comes from people's natural feeling that if I just tell my story, they're going to understand and agree with me. Yeah. yeah. And they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And they're shocked when the judge doesn't do it. And that's why, and we've talked about this before, when you're preparing for court, you listen to the question, you think about it. If you understand it, you answer it honestly in the least number of words as possible. And then you stop talking. Yes. And I put you on the stand, Pete, and you were so nervous. I was, you're like, oh my God, right? And we were talking about your name, answers to questions you know. Yeah, I, I, I got yeah, that wrong. Right. Yeah. So yeah. on that whole point, and I'm telling people that when you get emotional, it detracts from your ability to have your story told. Now, there's portions for emotion, Right. And there's ways to bring out evidence that makes it believable. So boiling it down is so important. Pete, we need to talk about the holidays and divorce. It's a stressful time for families, especially when alcohol is involved and our friends at Soberlink want to help. Yeah, they do. Soberlink has teamed up with us here at the at the Toaster and other divorce and family law experts to provide information that you didn't know that could help provide peace of mind during the holidays. Seth, tell the people about Soberlink. It is the solution for you if you're going through a divorce in a custody case involving alcohol. Why is it the solution? It is because if you're falsely accused of alcohol use, or if you're the concerned parent about your kid's safety when they're with the other parent, Soberlink is here to help. And the way they do that is they offer a remote alcohol monitoring system that is the gold standard because of its technology, where literally the parent who is trying to say, I'm sober, I'm clean, I'm focused on the kids. They will blow into the device. It has facial recognition and it will give real-time information to the concerned parent so they know 
you're sober, you're focused on the kids, they're safe. Go enjoy the holidays. Absolutely. And you can get Soberlink's free guide for the upcoming holiday season. You just have to request it by visiting www.soberlink.com slash toaster. That's www.soberlink.com slash toaster. We thank Soberlink, the entire Soberlink team, for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster. I want to transition because I feel like that is a a great segue into a part that gets it emotional, which is the kids, right? Renee brought up the kids, and uh, I'm interested in, you know, we're in this high conflict, this contentious, potentially domestic abuse situation. What are the steps you go through to protect the kids during a custody battle? It seems like those are the, the, the kids are the ones who are at greatest risk, and this is not really a battle involving the kids. It's between the the parents. Am I right in thinking about that? Yeah, this becomes one of the biggest problems, too. I mean, you, you hear these accusations of parental alienation, right, in spite of the fact that that's junk science. You've got the domestic violence by proxy, but I think... The, the best thing that I always say is you, you can't be talking to your kids about the court battle. You just can't. You know, I know, Seth, earlier you were saying the children, when are they old enough to actually speak to the judge, right? Well, you want to try to avoid that altogether. Um, it's going to happen from time to time, but you shouldn't be coaching your kids. You shouldn't be talking to your kids about it. Um, I, it's, it's my recommendation that as little awareness of these court dates and all these court preparations that the kids can have, the better. The problem is, is that, you know, what if, what if the other parent isn't doing the same thing? Right. What if the other parent is disparaging um, what we call the healthier parent when we're talking about domestic violence? Right. What if they're preparing them for court? I just had a client recently who the abusive parent was actually had the child um, memorizing note cards and filed a motion specifically to have the children talk to the judge. That's that was a whole motion. Please talk to these kids because they say they want to be with me. Meanwhile, my client has documentation like crazy of bribery, the no cards, all of it. And um, this is the kind of thing that's really heartbreaking to see. And let me tell you, judges that have been doing this long enough, they know and they've said it in open court. Be careful what you wish for. I've had so many clients say, or cases, I should say, where one parent is saying, I want the judge to talk to the kids. I want the judge to talk to the kids. I want the judge to talk to the kids. And if I'm representing that parent, I'm like, let's be careful. Because sometimes they get behind closed doors and they don't say what you think they're going to say. Yeah. Right? If that judge could make them feel protected and safe and saying, I'm here to do what I think is best for you. You get to tell me your your story. And they talk it through and sometimes that's not going to work out in your favor. And the other thing, kind of to to backtrack a little, Pete, one of the most difficult things about family law, it is the really what I can think of as the only area of law off the top of my head where the main thing you're fighting about, which are human beings and their lives, the children don't get a say. And really what we're doing is evaluating the parents and how they are as parents and how do their actions impact the children. 
what the judges have a really hard time doing because cases don't get presented to them the way the judges might want to hear them is stop talking about your bickering. Start talking to me about the kids, right? And we, you know, we've had Judge, Judge Tibbles on the show. He's like, if a parent comes in and tells me everything's great and parenting's easy, I've got kids. I know that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not forget judges uh, yeah. are human, I think, is that message. Yeah. Renee, they you're laughing as if that. you got a dozen kids. You're like, that's not true. Um, I've got one. So <laughs> for those of you who do have a dozen kids, my goodness. <laughs> no, I, you know, you make me think of the, there's this idea that's always dominant in my head. And I think, I, I know it comes from my psych background and really, it's frustrating for me because, um, you know, we've got all these 50-50 schedules and what's the best 50-50 and what's the best schedule and who's going to be the primary caregiver. And I kind of feel like instead of doing this whole, oh, well, now that we're getting a divorce, I've got a wake-up call and I want more time with my kids. Let's look at the kids and let's see what's kept them stable. Who has been the primary caregiver, right? It used to be that that's what we were focusing on. And now it kind of feels like, we're just looking at how can we get this to be 50-50? What's the best 50-50? But psychology tells us that there's not just a primary caregiver. There's a primary attachment figure. And the primary attachment figure is determined within the first two years of a child's life. So if you have a dad or a mom who has been the primary caregiver for the first two years of a child's life, it's so interesting because there are studies that show that even if that primary attachment figure is taken away for some reason, they were in jail or they had to go abroad or whatever, and the other parent becomes a primary caregiver, that that child will still feel closer to the absent parent who is their primary attachment figure. But that doesn't even come into play in court. And so I find it interesting that we're looking to see how we can reach 50-50 instead of saying, what stability have these children have? Can we trust it? How can we make that still happen, but allow them to go and visit the parent who wasn't their primary caregiver and is still a valuable person in their lives? Unironic, un non-sarcastic question. How many times do does that conversation happen outside of court between parents who are trying to determine custody, even in non-contentious like situations? Is that like I, I've this is the first time I've actually thought about it the way you're talking about it. But I guess we'll, puppies imprint on parents. I, I feel like we we did have a very similar conversation around how to take care of pets in a divorce situation. And it, it's I can't believe we're actually talking about kids that way right now. It's just sort of a surprise to me. I have this conversation all the time. And I've made these arguments in court. And here's how it goes. Church, these children are attached. Here's why they're attached. They're doing great in school. Here's everything. I think this parenting plan should mirror what's been happening in their lives, right? That's that's the argument. Yeah. The flip side of that is, judge, of course that's what's been happening in their lives because they were married and they were dividing up parental responsibility and financial responsibility, but now things are changing. And it's the public policy of this state that kids spend as much time with both parents as possible and, and frequent and continuing access and because things are changing, therefore, the kids are going to have to adjust. And things will change. And there's always an adjustment period. We get it, Judge. But it will be okay. And that's the other side of that argument. 
And so then people start throwing bombs, right? And literally, and, and Renee hit on it, we go for 50-50. One parent wants 50-50, right? And what happens is, and I've made this argument in court, judge, they're going for quantity, not quality, mm-hmm. right? So what do we really want? We want a parent who's at the game and puts down their cell phone. That's right. That's right. I like the way you phrase that. So Pete, Pete always says this, I got to pivot because I want to pivot, Pete. I'm taking your line <laughs> because you deal a lot with domestic yeah. violence and we've talked about, hey, we're dealing with stuff, but we're putting domestic violence aside. Let's just talk about that straight head on. Yeah. If you're a victim of domestic violence, how are we dealing with those types of cases? And what are some of that person's own, I'm going to put it in quotes, traps or barriers where they can't get through it or they find themselves in this cycle? And what can we do to help them get out of that violence, of that cycle of violence? The first thing is the most important thing, which is to get them out of that cycle of violence. Um, we know that the most dangerous time is when you you announce that you're leaving and you go. Um, so if you, if there is violence or if there's the potential for it, that's the most dangerous time right there, right? Um, the DV hotline is very good at this. Um, they are very good at telling you how to leave, what to do. They're very good at finding you your local resources. But then once you've, you've gotten away from that, right? then you are going into your court battle. And so it looks a little different. There are different things that you need to be doing. And this is where it gets tricky. I won't lie. Um, We really have to look at each case specifically. And keep in mind that when we talk about domestic abuse, uh, which is a term I'm using more and more rather than domestic violence because of the domestic violence that is psychological abuse, um, coercive control, laws are being passed in other countries. And we've got bills in some of our states and uh, law in Washington, but we're not quite where we need to be with that, right? So when I talk about domestic abuse, it encompasses all of that. So then what happens once you're in a court battle? Well, you got to get yourself a DV advocate, a domestic violence advocate. But I want to be clear that you have to really find out what your advocate's going to do. Because for the most part, an advocate is simply there to help you process the abuse and to figure out what next steps, what resources could be. Um, they'll direct you to housing, financial, all kinds of resources there. And um, many of them will actually come to your court case, whether it's Zoom or in person, and just sit there as a domestic violence advocate. And um, I like that as a statement. So I will tell you, before that happens, I always advise talking to your lawyer about who they want in the courtroom. Mm, I like that. Because remember, judges see everything in the courtroom and they're human and they're influenced by it. So if I'm having someone that's supporting my client, I'm going to want to talk to them. I want to make sure to talk to them about what they're going to wear, how they're going to behave in the courtroom, what they're going to do and not do, which basically you're not going to do anything but sit there. But most of our human communication is nonverbal. So that could be a problem as well. Um, And that could have potentially a negative impact. So just always think that through. Having support is great, but you don't want that support to become a negative aspect in your court case. Yeah. With the DV advocate, so that's somebody you've got, right? But then you're bringing in 
your concerns and you're trying to show what's going on in the household because what we find is that it's it's usually this is where the battle gets ugly. This is where it's kind of like, I want everything. Um, a lot of times what we're looking at, to be honest with you, is litigation abuse and control to the point where we will have an abusive parent who wants the children. And now that they have the children alone, whether it's just for one day a week or whether they've got a few, a little bit more time each week, what we're, what they find out is they come back and they say, well, they just sat them down in front of the TV. They dropped them off at their own moms. They, you know, so they're not really taking care of them and their focus is more on, I just don't want her to have the kids. I just don't want him to have the kids. But let me, let me point on that. Yeah. So now Pete. Yeah. You have a parent who's fighting for the children, not because I'm going to just say he, not because he wants them, because he doesn't want mom to have them. And he sits them down in front of the TV or he drops them off at grandma's house. Here's the conversation I have. They're better sitting in front of the TV than dealing with him. They're better at grandma's than with him. The hardest thing in the world is being a single parent, really being a single mom. You need to recharge your batteries. If they're with grandma, they're safe. No, they're not. She'll hide from them. Okay, let's just talk it through. The court's giving them some time. So we have to adjust our expectations. There is not a judge or court in this world that can make your spouse be a good parent. Mm -hmm. Stop asking the court to do that. Right. Right. I, you know what? Thank you for bringing that up because I got to be honest with these parenting classes and these types of things. It doesn't, it doesn't enact change. It doesn't. You mean like court ordered parenting classes? The court ordered parenting classes, that type of thing. There, there are very few classes that can really make a change. And we know, um, that you have to first admit that you're an abuser and be willing to change. And the chances of that happening are slim to none, especially when the court has ordered you to do it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Go to this advanced parenting class. <laughs> yeah. Go to this and admit that you're a right, bad person. Right. Right. But right. <laughs> the other thing to that, you can change what you do. So I work a lot with my clients, frankly, during the litigation to change how they communicate. Be brief, be informative, be friendly, be firm. And it's only about the issue at hand. Boom, 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 boom. And you just keep it. And it's almost like the same, in quasi quotes, rules that I give for your deposition or being in court. You really got to keep it brief. Just the minimum. Don't go on and on because that just opens the door or the proverbial can of worms. So that will also drive your spouse crazy because now you're communicating differently than they've expected or they've seen over the last two, three, five, 10, 15, 20 years. And it throws them for a loop. And now they have to try different behaviors to get back to pushing your buttons. And when you hold firm, they're lost. It's fascinating to watch the change between, and you know, you can see this yourself if you're in this situation and you make that change where you're brief, you're factual, you're friendly, you only respond to logistics about the children, nothing else. And it's, they go nuts, you know, the, the controller, the abuser, they, I mean, they started, the accusations come flying in. We actually, I always, I kind of love that. First off, you know, you've got finally this parent's getting some control over their life and they're keeping it brief. They're not giving away evidence as it were. But 
the other thing is I call it evidence gathering because the accusations come in. It's kind of like, so here's, here's some more accusations we might see. Um, and that's what you're going to tell your lawyer. Here's some more accusations that are flying in. Let's prepare for this too. So I find that craziness that they, that they come back with kind of helpful. Certainly to, to, to present or to confirm the case that you're making to your own attorney. Yeah, that, that's you right. Know, you're telling these stories that are kind of crazy. You're about to see it in action. Let's go. Let's go to court and see what that's like. And the other thing on that, Pete. Yeah. When you get these type of people in court, they're lost. Because they're not in control. They're treated like a child. Speak when spoken to and it's answer the question. And I usually see someone that's just combative all the time still. They just can't get it out. And the court sees it and they're like, well, judge, here's what I'm talking about. Or they're overly deferential to the judge and to the bailiff and all that stuff. And it's almost like they come in with their tail between their legs and they're just so super, super nice. Right? Right. The judges see all these personalities and it's almost like, really? That's like the creepy neighbor next door that, oh, he was always so nice. And then he's the axe murderer. Right. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and, and they're like, oh, yeah, everyone likes him. My clients tell him, everyone likes him. He's so charming. I'm like, he's not going to be charming when I'm pressing him on answers and he's not answering them. Right. Yeah. Well, and that is that's something that's interesting, Seth, you bring that up. You know, we talked to, uh, with uh, Megan Hunter on a high conflict divorce and, and talking about the same some of the same issues. And one of the things she she had indicated was, you know, you like narcissists always think that they're the first of their kind. Right. That they're the first and the best. So they come into court and they surely feel like you've never seen anything like me. Right. Like I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be better than anybody else who's ever done this thing put on this show in this courtroom at this time. So I I think that's fascinating. I've seen it in depositions where literally they think they're smarter than me. And guess what? They might be. But this is their first time being deposed in a family law case. And I've done this a thousand times. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I just have more experience. I've seen more pitches. And I see their lawyer who I might be friends with and who's a very good lawyer. And I'm asking these questions and, and the answers they're giving. And the lawyer's like, oh, my God, my guy's getting filleted. And then we get done with the deposition and then we offer a settlement, right? And then I've got that on record. So when he answers differently in court, what changed in the last three weeks? <laughs> you know, um, so it's really where they just. They don't understand, I'm going to put this in quotes, the game they're playing. No, I agree. They don't understand the process. They don't, and, and when you can get under them, their skin, which isn't really hard to do, it shows their true colors. And if they're just doing this, like you're saying, Pete, I'm the first of my kind, I've got this, they don't. Mm-hmm. But you need a lawyer that's going to be able to expose that through the questions and answers and listening to the answers and doing the follow-up questions and drilling down. And You do, but it's true. They think that they're special and unique. It's part of the work that we do is we'll do uh, group coaching calls because we found it's incredibly effective for people to see us work with other clients. And over and over again, we'll bring up an email and a client will say, how do I respond to this? And there will be two other people on the Zoom saying, holy crap, almost word for word. I have that email. Yeah. And it's it's like they thought, you know, they feel so alone because it's such an attack and they do think that they're so superior and that type of thing. But they're all it's like there's a narcissistic playbook out there and they're all just memorizing it. And then they think that they actually made it up. It's 
it's insanity. I'm a little bit relieved that uh, I don't think they listen to this show. The narcissist? They don't need it. Those people. They don't, yeah, the narcissist. <laughs> they don't need anything. Don't, that's not really our core audience. Why would they? They know everything. <laughs> they got right, it. Exactly. Already, you know. So I, I feel like we've we've talked a lot. I just want to put, before I forget, uh, you mentioned the, the DV hotline. It is thehotline.org, T-H-E hotline.org. And the uh, National Domestic Violence Hotline, their domestic violence support is fantastic. They are saying that it's a 15-minute wait for calls, possibly more right now, but it is staffed 24-7. You can chat with them. And if you are, I'm I'm sort of blown away by the, the technical back end of the site. I mean, if you feel like you are uh, in a, a place where uh, you're, internet use is being if you're being watched or somehow in a in a not a safe place they have this little trick you can just hit the escape key twice on your keyboard and the site just takes you back to google um it's just so smart they've they've thought of a lot of things uh, resources in the in the show notes but if you if you need a resource while you're listening to this show it's the hotline.org awesome let's uh, uh let's let's pivot a little bit uh renee you you're not an attorney no background is in psychology how did you end up going into custody coaching yourself? So my background is, uh, I, you know, I'm a true Gemini. I've done a lot and I've done it all quite deeply. And uh, so I do have a psych background, but um, my career's really been in strategy on the corporate side and uh, teaching outside of that um, for several years of each um, concurrently. So um, I went through my own custody battle um, with someone uh, who was highly problematic. I was calling the DV hotline and they were telling me how to leave and that type of thing. And when I was going through it, I ended up um, interviewing 13 lawyers before I found one that Ooh. actually said the right thing to me. Um, wow. Yeah, 13 lawyers. It was like, I, you, you could tell I'm a teacher and a researcher because I was like, okay. The 13 Unless lawyer... you would have explained that to me, like I'm a teacher and researcher. <laughs> if you called me and I was like number seven, I'd be like, Renee, I'll be straight with you. You were not off to a good start. So let me, so what's interesting about it is that I couldn't quite get anybody to understand what I was dealing with. And I knew there would be somebody out there. I just knew it. And it was this, this one who kind of looked at it and he said, it's you, you have to get control back here somehow. You have to get control of your own life. It's not like you have to be controlling, but I mean, and I was kind of like, Oh my God, you kind of understand what's happening here. So he understood the psychological abuse. That was it. That was the key. Yeah. Renee, Renee, I'm going to, I'm going to, put you on the spot here okay? because I'm going to tell you what I tell potential clients when they call me and see how you would have responded. Pete, we haven't planted this. So she could say, Seth, you're an idiot or Seth, you're brilliant. I know which one you're voting for. (laughs) Well, I I think you know which one I'm voting for. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Okay. So when someone comes to me on the phone or on a Zoom or we're sitting down and they start telling me this story, after I hear what I consider to be enough in quotes. And what I mean by enough to me, I get it. I get it. I I know what you're dealing with because I've been doing this a long time. I've had these conversations. I dealt with these guys before. I will immediately say, I got it. Please stop talking to me about him. I want to know about you. What are your goals? What are your objectives? So I can figure out whether we're a good fit and I can tell you whether I can achieve those goals if they're realistic in the court system and what we're about to do versus the real world, perceived world, legal world that we mentioned briefly before. So, and then they'll hear me and then they'll start talking about, well, he does this, 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 this. I'll be like, stop, please. I don't represent him. 
I get the type of person you're talking about. I represent you if you want me to. I'm asking about you. Let's talk about how you can. And then I'll say stuff like how we can focus on you, how we can get a better life for you. How do you want to feel the same way you feel today a year from now or two years from now? If the answer is no, we need to take a step today or step and start changing it. How do you think you would have responded to a firm, brief, informative, friendly conversation? But I'm pretty hard on them on that. What, what do you think of that approach? That is largely the language my number 13 used. And that's why I ended up with him. Oh, Pete, you lose again. Look at you. <laughs> my number uh, my number two. I haven't run this bell in forever. No. The, so the first person was I I the first person was I was all clank, okay, I don't know. And then I knew I needed to speak to more than one person. I can't just pick the first lawyer. The second lawyer said that I should just abscond with my child and that didn't feel good to That's me. That's bad. What? So, yeah. What? Okay. Wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, abscond with uh, your child. Yes. Should just go. Should just take the child and go. Um and so I'm sure that wasn't on the bar exam. I'm sure I I, and I kind of felt that it, right it, all, it is on out. the bar exam he, it's a wrong answer okay <laughs> it's just not the answer i would want i would expect yeah. it's like the homer simpson giphy where i'm just like backing back into the bush to go look it's for another lawyer so um no but i found the lawyer he was good and it was just the two of us and i kind of felt like you know, I've got this strategy background. I'm so super organized. And he was all like, oh my God, you're such an ideal client. You're giving me this. You're narrowing this down. You're doing this. You're doing all of that. I felt like we needed something else that wasn't a reflection on him or me. It just felt like something was missing. And I had discovered that I was being psychologically abused and was also in recovery at the same time. So when I was doing that as, you know, back, this was like 10 years ago. And so when I was doing that, there wasn't a lot on the internet about narcissism or NPD, narcissistic personality disorder or abuse, but there were a few places. One of them suggested, um, you know, a, a woman who was a divorce coach. It was like a divorce coach. What's that? So I talked to her and she specialized in NPD. And, um, she, it was Tina Swithin. She's the head of One Mom's Battle. And she was my divorce coach. And she changed the trajectory of my case, just having her there. But there was a point where she said, look, now that you're having a custody evaluation, um, you, you, this is not my wheelhouse. I have two coaches who are specialized in this and can prepare you for it to really just not, you know, falter and just really do what needs to be done. So let's, let's back up. Mm-hmm. Pete, as we've discussed before, there's a mediator, there's a judge, there's a court reporter, there's all these people around a divorce. One of them is a guardian ad litem right. where they're going to go and talk to the kids and talk to the parents and any teachers or friends or little league coaches or all these other people, babysitters, whatever, and to try to get a full picture of this kid's life, how the parents interact, and they come up with uh, what they think is a parenting plan. They give it to the judge. The judge doesn't have to take it, but you go with that. Season two, episode three. There you go. Courtney Bowes, you got guardian it. ed litem. Then we have a full custody evaluator, which is a mental health professional that will do psychological testing and meet with you and do everything your guardian just did, but they really dive into the psychology through the testing. So part of what I do as a lawyer and what Renee's talking about now is preparing the client on how to speak to these people that are evaluating you and trying to figure out what's best for your kids because that's part of the evaluation and that can change the outcome of your case by how you present yourself and how you talk about 
the other parent and how you respond when your parenting is going to be analyzed and under a microscope or you feel you're being attacked. Okay. It's vitally important. And so many lawyers I know is like, Oh, let's go evaluate her. And then they just send off their client. Yeah. And they're just going into the lion's den without any preparation. Yeah. So that's what I, that lion's den was what I was going to go into without preparation. Um, but Tina said, she said, you know what? You have this strategy background. You organize and research like crazy. Just come up with something, figure out how to present your documentation, your evidence, as it were. And, um, let's just kind of get through it. So I put some stuff together, spent a few weeks, came back to her and she said, Renee, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. She said, you're presenting it in such a clear, persuasive way. You're showing, you're showing only so much evidence, but it tells the whole picture and you're, you've got it organized. And I said, well, I just leaned on my, um, strategy background that, you know, there is a psychological persuasion to the way you present things. And that's what I used here. She said, you should become a coach. And I said, slow your roll. <laughs> I really need to get through this. Um, but a couple of years later, you know, people, she had spread the word and people were like, I, I need, I need this, these templates. I need these templates. And these templates were going out all over the place. And a friend said, you, you got to just be doing this. You got to give up everything you're doing. I think that this is what you should be doing. And so that's, that's what I've been doing for the last five years. That's where you are. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, so then you practice your business through Best Foot Forward. I do. Where would you send people to learn more about your, your work and the kinds of tools you present for folks? You can go to thecustodyblueprint.com, thecustodyblueprint.com, and um, there you can find out more about us. Um, we do talk about the kind of clients we work with, uh, which is largely what I've been describing. We're pretty much, our niche is really um, people who have suffered narcissistic abuse, quite frankly, men and women. We help them get through it because um, I'm also a domestic violence advocate now. So the thing of it is, is that, you know, what we're doing is, yes, people are using the blueprint and figuring, using these templates and figuring out how to get through the evaluation, but we help them partner strongly with their lawyer. We help them figure out what kind of strategy ideas to bring to their lawyer from my strategy background. We help their mindset. They are recovering from abuse. Many of these people are still living with an abusive spouse who has escalated. And how do you appear in court if you're a mess and up here and, you know, everywhere? And so, we help with that as well. Um, and then, of course, we help them organize their documentation and choose, select some of it to um, bring in to show the court. You hear that, Seth? I mean, that sounds like a dream for a guy like you. I'm actually going to just take the rest of the day off. <laughs> have Renee work with everybody. With everybody yeah. you got on everybody, the docket. Yeah. Everyone on the docket. Uh, well, I, you know, so the question for you, Seth, how many, uh, just as a rough percentage of the cases that you deal with on a given time period, say a year, are contentious enough that, that they escalate to this sort of, sort of classification of custody battle like we've been talking about? 10%, 20%, 5%? I would tell you that less than 10% of the cases go to a full-blown trial. Probably less than 5% go to a full-blown trial. It doesn't mean that there weren't some skirmishes along the way. It doesn't mean that we don't do everything Renee is saying. You don't have to get to the trial to have a big, drawn-out custody battle. Because ultimately, the case might get resolved at a mediation or a settlement or you go through and have this evaluation done and the evaluator comes back 
favorable to you, not favorable to the other side. Well, now what are they going to go to court with? So sometimes what I tell my client, offer just a little more than what they're being, the evaluators giving them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's save exactly. $100,000, right? <laughs> so um, put your kids through college, not mine. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, I, I just think, you know, I hear all this and I, I think it's interesting as, as, you know, looking at it from the outside that uh, just how valuable, like that this doesn't happen in all cases. We're talking about a, a percent of, a, of, of divorce cases uh, that involve kids that drive toward these contentious, narcissistic, you know, custody battles. But man, what a relief that you are doing the work you do, Renee, to, to help smooth this out for people who need it. So um, I so appreciate you being here and teaching us uh, about what you do and how you do it and how you integrate with the um, with the, the legal, the universe of, of the law. I'm grateful to be doing it. Um, and I'm grateful to help um, all the clients and, and, you know, augment what the lawyers are doing. So yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, on behalf of... Uh, Renee Rodriguez and, uh, you know, we, Seth Nelson, he's always here. Uh, we, we thank you, everybody, for uh, downloading and listening to the show. Don't forget, you can get a, uh, you can ask us questions. Uh, just head over to, to howtosplittotoaster.com slash ask a question. And uh, you can post your questions for us about this or any other topic you would like to ask your divorce lawyer. We will answer it. We'll have Seth answer it. And, uh, uh, and we'll help you help you figure out some problems. That's what we want to do on this show. So thank you so much on behalf of Renee Rodriguez and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. I'm Pete Wright. And we'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.